So I wanted to do a recap on uh, what I preached about last time. Last time, uh, the point we're up to in Hebrews is we're talking about Old Covenant and New Covenant. And, um, and my pastor that I, that I pretty well grew up with at my previous church, uh, he did like a two-year sermon series or some phenomenal crazy thing on Covenant. It went for ages and I learned so much and I grew so much because the idea of covenant is such a powerful idea. I ended up going back home the day I preached this sermon last time and asked my next door neighbour. He's a 19-year-old, um, got a job, lives a pretty simple life, lives with a bunch of mates up next door. And, uh, and I said to him, I said, have you ever heard of the word covenant? He's like, yeah, no, no, it's not in my vocabulary. <laughs> So this is, it seems to be a really foreign idea, particularly if you're not within the church and don't read the Bible. Um, it, it seems to be a very foreign idea. And so it's in the Bible and we need to understand it because it's a really important idea that God, uh, that God inst- has instituted. So last time I looked at God as a covenant-keeping God who by very nature is in covenant relationship with himself in the Father, in Jesus and in the Holy Spirit. So the Trinity are in covenant with one another, in perfect covenant with one another. Um, I looked at the difference between a contract and a covenant. A contract is limited to the exchange of property, like this is yours and that's mine, whereas a covenant involves an exchange of life. I am yours and you are mine. This is why on a wedding day, uh, two people exchange vows to one another. It's like a solemn oath. I am now yours and you are now mine. And that's not like an enslaving thing that you're my slave and I'm your slave. No, no, no. It's this loving uh, covenantal relationship that two people would have with one another. And the language is uh, is obvious that it's a covenant. Uh, And this is what God's covenant is like. Through the covenant... uh, Let me just skip around here. Here we go. Through covenant with God, we enjoy a relationship with him that is akin to marriage and includes protection from Satan, our enemy... Peace with God, though we declared war on him through sin, material provision in this life and the life to come, and a coming perfect kingdom as our home, where Jesus will forever rule over all as our gracious covenant king. When God enters into covenant with people, there's no moment of bargaining or negotiating the contract regarding the terms of the covenant. We don't come with a bargaining chip and say, All right, God, I'm going to come to this covenant. And uh, so, long as you, so long as you keep up my end of the bargain, right? That's not, that's not how God and his covenants work. God comes and makes covenants with people, and that's what he's done throughout all of history. Uh, it's always a kind and generous provision from God to his people. It cannot be earned by his people. The people aren't deserving of it. It's not like they, uh, they came to God and said, Sweet God, here's what we've got. Look how good we are. Um, now please come and be in covenant with us. No, God comes to an undeserving people and enters into an incredible covenant relationship with them. God is the owner of the covenant in that he conceives, devises, determines, establishes, confirms and dispenses his covenants. So you get in the picture, these are the covenants that God makes with his people and God is the keeper of the covenant. We have our end to, uh, to uphold um, but God is the keeper of the covenant. I finished the last sermon with uh, looking at areas that covenant thinking impacts. I looked at, like you think about a contractual thinking and covenant thinking. Sometimes we can approach some of the really important covenant relationships that we have uh, as contracts, right? So people in marriage often see marriage as a contract where two, two partners come together. 
What's my, here's what I have, here's what you have. Let's somehow join that together. If somehow we split, we split it 50-50. We split it two ways, right? It's not, it's not a I am yours and you are mine and everything I have is yours and everything you have is mine and we are joined together in a covenant. Uh, it's this 50-50 sort of relationship. And so instead, marriage becomes a covenant. Um, parenting. Often, this was one thing that was new to me, was that parenting is a covenant relationship with children. Right? It's not dependent upon whether they're good or whether they're bad. You are in a covenant, loving relationship with your children that is unceasing till the day they die. Uh, and that is the responsibility that, uh, that parents uphold. Now, that's been broken. People sitting here today uh, know that that's been broken. You would have talked to people. Maybe it's your life yourself where that covenant relationship was well and truly broken. And, uh, and there's pain that comes with that. And all the more point why we need covenant and why we need to understand covenant well. Church membership. I talked about church membership. But what I, what I want to come to today is that these things don't change. I mean, we can't, we can't just start thinking covenantally just like that unless there's actually a change internally in us. Because ultimately, uh, when, we, when we try to do things ourselves and when we try to live up to God's standards ourselves, the fruit is not the appropriate fruit because it actually starts with us and ends with us. And ultimately what God wants is fruit that starts from him because he's the vine that we get, to get attached to and that he would be bearing fruit through us. And, uh, and so here we go. We're going to read from Hebrews chapter 8, verse 9 to 13 today. So if you've got your Bible, it would be great for you to open up, keep up. Uh, Hebrews chapter 8, verses 9 to 13. Here we go. Verse 9. It's not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. So this is God speaking. Uh, in this instance, it's actually to Jeremiah. Um, and Jeremiah had this written 400 years before Jesus ever came. And so this is God speaking to his, uh, his prophet Jeremiah. Uh, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. I did some shopping this week. It was my wife's birthday on Friday. And, uh, and so I was out shopping for my wife's birthday. And I did not buy her this particular thing, but noticed it in the news agency of all places. So you can have a look up on the screen there. <laughs> Jesus soap. Wow. <laughs> Notice the little guy down in the corner? Not sure if you uh, recognize his face. Not sure if anyone should recognise his face. Uh, it would appear to be Satan, and uh, Satan is saying it's that good. Even I use it. <laughs> this is you laugh at this, probably because it's <laughs> it seems so crazy, and uh, and I, I don't laugh at it because it mocks Jesus. Um, I laugh at it at it because it seems so ridiculous, but. 
I, I think it actually sometimes is the way that, that we view God. I actually think that this is telling of how people approach God. The greatest problem with people is that we do some things wrong in the day and all we really need to do is get a bit of Jesus, jump in the shower and wash it off. We're all clear, we're all sweet. The great problem with this is that this is not how God explains the problem with people. Our great problem is not just the sins that we commit day by day. Our great problem is an inherent issue of sin which ultimately means we're in opposition to God. It's an inherent desire to rule and control our own lives so that we can do what we want completely separate from God. And so this section that we've just read speaks very clearly about four characteristics of God's new covenant. And my hope today, I'm going to take that off because I think it could be distracting for some people. You can be as bad as you want all day than at night. Simply wash away your sins. I mean, the idea is okay, but, uh, but how it gets worked out is pretty average. This section speaks clearly about four characteristics which I'd like to go into. First, it speaks of God putting the law into our minds and writing it on our hearts. Now, I don't know where you've come from. Personally, I've come from a, um, a background where it seems that the law has just been almost abolished. And, uh, and so you can't think about law anymore. It's like if you think about law, uh, you become a self-righteous person. If you think about law in relation to God, um, it it, it becomes a real mess. And so you can't think about law. You shouldn't preach about law in case you produce some law-keeping, law-abiding Christians. And, uh, And ultimately, I think it's messed up my thinking a bit because right here God says he's actually put his law into our head and written it on our heart. So what's the go there? So for so long, I've heard that law is not great and you shouldn't focus on the law. But yet God's saying, I've put the law in your head and written it on your heart. So it just messes our whole thinking up. But God has a tendency to do that. I'm pretty sure you know that. God has a tendency to mess our thinking up just when we least want it or least expect it. When you look back at the first giving of the laws, if you look right back into Exodus, and uh, God is speaking to Moses on the top of Mount Sinai, this would be, I, I cannot imagine... I cannot imagine what this would have been like. So the people are down the bottom looking up on Mount Sinai, knowing that Moses is up there. There's a great storm happening up there. There's thunder. There's lightning. And this incredibly miraculous moment where uh, God, with his finger, the Bible literally says, with his finger, writes on tablets of stone the laws that would actually bring life to his people. So remember, I, I don't know if you remember from last time, but last time I talked about the people of Exodus had just come out, so God's people had just come out of slavery. And so all their lives, literally for 400 years, that's quite a few generations, 400 years they'd been in slavery under the Egyptians. And so you, you could imagine there's a million people, upwards of a million people, walking out of this whole country and going, we don't know how to live. We've been slaves for so long. We've been told what to do every day of our lives. We've been given food by the people who, who, uh, who are above us. And we don't know how to live. And so God's saying, here's how you live. It's not like God's saying, you need to follow the rules and obey the rules. No, here's how you live. This is what the purpose of the law was. And, uh, and, and so God, Moses is up on Mount Sinai to meet with God. And during the meeting, God with his very finger wrote on tablets of stone the commandments. The writer to the Hebrews is now saying that a new covenant is now ushered in. The new covenant would mean that God would put the law into their minds 
and write them on their hearts. Do you see what the difference is here? So first covenant, God writes on external tablets of stone that people can walk up to and see all the laws that they need to, uh, that they need to live by so that they can truly live as God's people and uh, in connection with God and with each other. And, uh, and now God's saying, I'm going to write it, I'm going to take it from what's external and I'm going to put it internal. I'm going to bring about something internal in every single believer. <clears throat> to illustrate, what I'd like to do is turn back to a story surrounding Jesus, a sinful woman and a Pharisee. Before we get into it, I want to make a few things clear about the Pharisees. The name Pharisee, in case you haven't heard of it, Pharisee was a uh, group of men, usually men, uh, in its Hebrew form, which meant the separated ones. Okay? And so what they did was lived passionately following God and obeying his rules uh, and his laws, and in the end, taking the law and extrapolating it, putting a little bit of extra on there so that they make sure that uh, they don't come even close to breaking the laws. And so it's like, there's the law, there's the line, and we're just going to build a fence around the line so that you don't ever go near it, so you don't cross over it. And so they took what was meant to be life-giving and made it burdensome. It was like putting a... I mean, you, you think about a yoke on an ox, all right? And an ox uh, holds up that yoke and uh, drags it along. That's what, the, uh, that's what the Pharisees would do. They'd extrapolate the laws. They'd take the laws and add to them so that they would just become a heavy burden that people would have to drag around with them. Um, and, and they would ultimately have to drag around with them. Uh, they passionately obeyed God, but to their detriment, they were so focused on being obedient in the most intricate parts of the law that they ended up adding to those, so it was impossible to keep up with them. But so that they could show themselves to be really, really good people. So they had a reputation, and they had quite a lot of influence with the people around them. They had huge influence amongst the Jews because they were the people who looked like and appeared like they were just, they were really good people. They actually had a good reputation with the people because they were actually kind to the people um, in, in some senses. But the people were like, I've got to live up to the Pharisees. Man, they, they're held in honour. They're held so high up because they live such good lives and they obey all the laws. They do everything that God tells them to do. They were devoted to having people honour them and see just how righteous they were. They knew God's law to such an extent that I've already said they added to those laws some proverbial fences just so people didn't even come close to breaking them. Here are some of the comments that Jesus made toward the Pharisees. One is in uh, Matthew 23. If you've got your Bible, once again, love you to open up. Matthew 23 verse 1 says this, Then Jesus says to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe what they tell you, Jesus is actually affirming you should do what God says. These are the laws that God's put in place. You should do what God says. They're meant to be life-giving. But do not do what the Pharisees do. Do what they say, but don't do what they do. For they preach, but don't practice. There's a connection here because they preach, they make external, but actually don't let it get internal and bring about transformational change that would bear good fruit. They tie up heavy burdens and hard to bear and they lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad. You want to know what phylacteries are? I forgot to look that one up. Phylacteries? The what? Great. Excellent. That's how important it is. 
Phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honour at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Hello, Pharisee. How are you going? They love having people like them. And greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ, Jesus. The greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. It keeps going on later on down the, uh, the verse. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Bunch of hypocrites. They say one thing and do the other. Because they can't even keep up with the laws themselves. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Just say, you know, we're going to start a new tithe box. It's for your spices. So make sure you bring all your spices next week, 10%. Make sure you bring it all and, uh, and make sure you're tithing of everything, even your spices, all right? We're just sitting up the back there. We'll make some nice chicken or something. Uh, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat, gnat, and swallowing a camel. So apparently they used to practice, they had this practice of uh, making sure that everything they ate and everything they drank was clean. So they had a reputation of washing their hands. Make sure you wash your hands. They got up the disciples because they're walking through the fields one Sunday and one Sunday and picking a head of grain just so they could eat and be, be satisfied. And the Pharisees come up. You've eaten with unclean hands. You've done what's wrong. And so they had this, uh, they had this thing where uh, they had to strain out all, all that would be impure in their wine so that they could be drinking pure wine. And Jesus is saying, you've done everything down to the minutest detail, but you've swallowed a camel. You've missed the most important things. You've actually committed greater sins in neglecting the most important things. In being so fixated on keeping all the intricacies of the law, they'd missed the larger, weightier sin of failing to show justice, mercy, and to have faith. Then in Matthew 5.20, he says this, Jesus, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees were righteous. They did everything really well. They obeyed really well. And they looked so incredibly upright. Another thing that Jesus said to them was, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You polish the outside of the cup, meanwhile the inside's filthy. You miss the inside. You look so externally amazingly good. But the internal, the heart, is messed because you missed it. You miss the internal. And here's where the story begins. Luke 7 verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. It seems to be crazy, right? Why would Jesus do this? Why would Jesus, knowing that this is what they were like, go and eat a meal with them? Well, he could have provided some hope here, right? Even Pharisees can be saved. And Jesus took his place into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. So it's not like it's just any woman walks in. It's like a woman who is renowned for her sin. 
whatever her sin was, the Bible doesn't go into detail. She was renowned to be sinful. She was renowned to uh, do what's wrong externally. She was very, it was very evident that whatever she was doing was wrong and was sinful. And standing, as uh, she brought into the... Uh, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping... God's given us imagination. Use your imagination right now. Here's Jesus reclining at a table. From what I understand, it's a low table and they'd lie down. Their feet would be uh, out the back. All right? uh, if you've ever been to Fiji, this is how uh, you, you eat after a meal. So you sit on the floor along a big row. They set out a big, uh, big tablecloth and you sit at the tablecloth and eat your meal. And then when you're finished... All the Fijians kick back and they're lying around and just having a great old laugh and have tea and tea and dessert. And, uh, and so here's Jesus reclining at the table, his feet sticking out behind him, and this woman comes weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. You imagining this? He's the most righteous of men all standing around. Jesus is kicking back at the table, about to enjoy a good meal, and here's a woman weeping. So much so that her tears are washing Jesus' feet. That's a lot of tears, isn't it? It's not just like a few tears rolling down her face. She's weeping. You can imagine sobbing. Absolute sobbing. And then uses her hair to wash Jesus' feet. I mean, that's... That, oh, it's, <laughs> I don't really like feet all that much. My wife really enjoys a foot massage, but I, I'm just not really... I do it because I love her. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> you can imagine, feet in those days, like the washing of feet was the lowest of low jobs. And she's not even using a cloth, she's using hair. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, get that, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of this woman was who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So, whoever this Pharisee is questions Jesus' authority. He was a real prophet. People say he's a prophet. He's not a real prophet. As if he'd know this woman is a sinner. He wouldn't let her come near him. She came near him, she'd be, he'd be unclean in a second. And Jesus, answering him, said to him, hold on, he spoke to himself, didn't he? Jesus answers his own thoughts. Jesus answered him, he is the true prophet. Jesus answered him, saying, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender has two debtors. One owed 500 denaro and the other 50. When they could not pay, he cancelled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he cancelled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. 
You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But, who is, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, the woman, your sins are forgiven. That's it. That's, could you imagine that woman? What an intense moment. Publicly shamed because of her sin. Everyone knew the depth of her sin. She probably knew it deeper. And she comes to Jesus with nothing but an alabaster, bar, an alabaster jar, some tears, some hair, and a humble position. And then she walks away free. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. There's a clear depiction of two types of people here. One who is clearly righteous because they have proven themselves through their obedience and goodness, and the other who has nothing to offer but a heart that is moved to action in faith, that Jesus truly is God. Both had a debt before God. The Pharisee and the woman both had debt before God. What Jesus was saying is that probably the woman's debt was greater, it seems. And the Pharisees might have been lesser because of how much he obeyed the law. But both had debt before God. She knew she was in the presence of God as tears were flowing down her face. The debt is sin which every person sitting here has inherited. This is the writing of the law in her heart. Jesus summed up the law by saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, and you shall love your neighbour. This was all of the laws of the Old Testament summed up in two statements. You must love God with all of your heart, soul, mind and strength, and you must love others. That's how Jesus summed up the laws. And these laws had suddenly been written on her heart. She walked in and knew that she was in the presence of somebody great. She was in the presence of God and so she was brought to tears, to weeping because of her great debt of sin. She humbly came before Jesus. The Pharisees missed Jesus. She knew she was in the presence of God as tears were flowing to the point that they were literally washing Jesus' feet. Simon, on the other hand, couldn't believe that Jesus was letting her near him for fear that she would make him unclean. Was the woman who walked out of there the more righteous than the Pharisee. Remember what Jesus said? You will only be free if you become more righteous than what the Pharisees and scribes are. Who walked away free that day? The woman. Who had the greater debt and who actually received the righteousness that Jesus would give her. What was the difference? The law of God had been put in her mind and written on her heart. She worshipped Jesus through faith and in love. He worshipped God through work and obedience. She knew the weightiness of her sin and was forgiven by Jesus to walk away debt-free before God and he thought that he was in the all clear because he was keeping the law so well. Simon lived and breathed the law and thought that what brought him out of debt with God was his obedience to the law and maintaining goodness. He thought that he didn't have much to be forgiven. So he missed the opportunity to love and worship Jesus. He had the law in his head because, his, because of his hard work in keeping the law. It was restricted from moving to his heart. See, because it depended upon him. He had the law in his head. He memorized it. 
Pharisees were renowned for knowing the law and memorizing the law to the finest detail. They had the law in their heart head, but it was restricted from moving to their heart because they were so hard working and being obedient. They had it flipped up the wrong way. He couldn't see that Jesus was God and that the law must be written on his heart so that he would trust God alone to forgive his sins and not his own work of keeping other laws. The message of the sermon today is your work or the work of Christ in you. And this is the main idea of what Jesus is getting at here. You either depend on your own good work as a means of cancelling the debt you have with God or you trust in the work of Christ to cancel your debt before God so that you have no grounds to boast. I finished last time's sermon with, with Ephesians. And all Ephesians talks about is by grace you have been saved. There is nothing any single person here could do to make themselves saved and to cancel the debt of sin that every single person has before God. Not one thing. There is only one thing that could bring us back into relationship with God to cancel the debt and that is Jesus Christ's death on our behalf. When we think like a Pharisee, it is almost like God has a debt to pay to us because of how well we keep his, his laws. If you think like this, you've completely misunderstood the main problem. The main problem is that our nature of sin and the sin we commit is the debt we have before God and it ultimately separates us from God. The debt is unpayable by us. You are hopeless if you think that the debt is payable by your obedience and good work. It is hopeless. There is, some, there is sometimes a feeling of unworthiness to come before God because of the sin we've committed or because we have not maintained the level of perfection which God has set out. The only thing that could repay your debt, if you're that person feeling unworthy, you can't come to God because of such great sin. The only thing that could repay that debt is not you being concerned about your unworthiness. It's actually more about looking outward to somebody else who could. This is why the new covenant kicks the hiney of the old covenant. The old covenant could not, could not completely forgive sins. And you know this because they had to keep coming year after year after year after year to sacrifice more animals so more blood could be shed for the forgiveness of their sins. Jesus comes and has the only perfect blood and the only perfect life that could be sacrificed. He lays it down of his own accord so that we could be free, so that we could be the receivers of this perfect covenant. God is the one who came and initiated this covenant so that not just the Israelites, but all could be forgiven their debt. But now it was not just an external knowledge of the law, but an internalizing. A major shift, a major shift for someone who has, put the law, who has the law put in their mind and is a change in desire. This was the major shift, I think. The desire for the Pharisee is that they would please God. I must work hard to please God. And that is a good desire, but it has to start with a great root. How's it going? Still there? Oh. It has to start with the right
Which one? This one? Must continue to act of their own self-will. Ultimately, the Pharisees were some of, the most, some of Jesus' most fierce opponents. They completely missed God and actually opposed him. This is the result of a heart that is callous to God and passionately self-willed and self-determined. Don't we hear a lot of that today? The counsel that we hear, and it's not good counsel, is that we need to get more self-determined and we need to get more, have greater self-will and greater self-esteem. And ultimately, what that builds is a callousness to God coming in his covenantal love and changing us and transforming us. God is saying to you today, you can be free from yourself and the enslavement to your own desires and sin. And now, what makes this a better covenant than the old is that God empowers people so that they can obey. So do you see the difference? Over here, you've got, I must, I must obey God and I must work hard and I must do everything right so that God would be pleased with me and happy with me. And over here, you've got a completely different route. Jesus Christ... You've paid the penalty of death and risen again and beaten death so that my debt of sin to, between me and God has been completely cancelled. And now I get to obey. God gives this powerful person called the Holy Spirit to live within every person who believes. Within every person who believes that Jesus is God and that Jesus is the one who's paid the debt for their sin, he gives the Holy Spirit to be this great power so that people would be able to obey, so that people would be able to go out and do good works. So ultimately, where does the glory go for someone like that? The glory goes to God because it's God working in them, right? Where does the glory go for a Pharisee? The glory goes to him because he's worked really hard to stink and get a good reputation for doing everything right. Number two. Well, they're not all that long, don't worry. God will be their God and they will be his people. Do you hear the covenant language? It's not a contract. I am yours and you are mine. This would not be such a great deal, a, a big deal, except that without God showing mercy to people, we're all enemies of God because of the nature of inherent sin. Every person sitting here is going to sit, come before the great judgment seat of God. And that will be a scary day because inherent in every person is sin which is opposition and rebellion against God, right? But for those who love God and for those who have been changed by God, for those who have the law put in their head and written on their heart, they actually get to call him something different. Then I go to him as judge, they go to him as a father. And what do they boast in? They cannot boast in their own goodness. There will be two people... You'll either trust Jesus or you won't trust Jesus. You'll trust yourself. You'll come before God as a judge and you say, God, I did all these good things. Come on, I, like I did a few wrong things. Yeah, I understand that. I, yeah, I, I know, but I was pretty good. Like I, I did good stuff. I gave to charities and I, I did some really nice stuff. And there'll be eternal punishment for those people. But there will be eternal life. This is the good news, people. You don't know how good the good news is until you know how bad the bad news is, right? The good news comes because we realize that we are eternally indebted to God. But that Jesus Christ has made a way. Point number three, God will show mercy toward their iniquities and remember their sins no more. 
God will show mercy to their iniquities. The wrath of the Almighty God should have been poured out on us. Who's in debt to God? It's us. He's not indebted to us. He doesn't owe us anything. But instead, the the almighty wrath of God, the anger of God against sin and against evil was poured out on His Son, Jesus Christ. So that we wouldn't have to pay the debt ourselves. And so the mercy of God is his kindness. It's not giving us what we actually deserve. It's holding out. Saying, you've got time. Come and repent. I'm the holy God. There is no other. You will one day, whether you like it or not, have to come before the throne of God as judge. And you'll either be able to call him father or you'll have to continue calling him judge. So you could either come with tears as the woman did, acknowledging the depth of your sin. Or maybe you're like the other guy, who, the tax collector, who came outside the temple. And outside the temple there was a Pharisee and the Pharisee was standing up on the top step. I hope you don't mind, Matty. Oh, God! Thank you that I'm not like David down here. Thank you that I'm not a sinner like he is. Or you could come like the tax collector. He got down on the bottom step on his knees, beating his chest. God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. God owes us nothing but gives us everything. He gives to you today life. And some of you know it already, and that is marvelous. Some of you don't know the eternal life that God would have to offer. And I want to invite you today. Come and know it. This is part of my burden. I want you to know the good news that God has eternal life in store for those who come and enter into his covenant. Number four, the I wills of God. The better covenant is assured. The old covenant was naturally limited. It was temporary and partial, and it pointed toward this great new covenant. The new covenant is unrestricted in its power. It's eternal in its duration, and it completes its and complete in its effects. God makes definite promises to his people and binds himself in honor to blot out their transgressions. Here are the better promises. The I wills of God rob uncertain, doubting man of his timidity, reticence and fear. God says, I will make this covenant. The burden is not on you. I will engrave my laws into their hearts. The burden is not upon you. I will be their God. I will manifest myself to them all. So that all would know that I am God. I will make myself known to the least as well as the greatest. To the woman who is known for her sin. To the Pharisee who is known for their self-righteousness. He would make himself known. 
I will be merciful. I will forget sins. All the tentativeness and hesitancy of the earlier days have gone. And man can now be sure. All shall know him. All shall know God. So it's not enough today to say you believe in Jesus. Jesus' death and resurrection was not issued so that you or I or anyone would just believe. It's very external, isn't it? I believe in someone or something. But it's only until you let God write his law, put his law in your head and write it on your heart. He is God and you get to worship him. And you're not actually, uh, sorry, it was issued so that you believe that he is God and you're not and actually have a desire to bend your knee in worship and very practically see this outwork in your life. This covenant was not just for mere knowledge. It was enacted so that your life would be transformed with great power within you that comes from God himself. And so I'd love to uh, invite uh, Nath and the band to come back. And uh, we're going to sing a song again. What was the middle song? Cornerstone, yeah. I'm going to sing Cornerstone. And I'd invite you to respond, to consider, do you ever think like the Pharisee? Do you ever think like everything has to come from you and the power has to come from you to uphold this relationship with God? Do you ever think like you have to be obedient on your own terms and on your own ability before God, which really ultimately just sees him as a judge. You've either obeyed me or you haven't. Or do you actually come through Jesus? What does your prayer look like? I wonder how you pray. Is it always, God, forgive me, God, forgive me, God, forgive me? Or is it actually, God, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner? And you should name sin. It's important. Because God says, I'll remember that sin no more. I'll have mercy and I'll remember that sin no more. This is the blessing of the covenant. The blessing of the covenant is that he would show mercy to you and to your sin and that he would forget your sins and remember them no more. This is transformational forgiveness, isn't it? It's not like the forgiveness of a friend, a husband, a wife, a brother, a sister that gets brought up the next time you have a fight, right? This is the ultimate of forgiveness where it's, I'll remember it no more. I will disconnect that sin from you. And you'll be mine. And that's life. Let me pray. Well, God, uh, this new covenant is, is incredible. You owe us nothing, but you give everything. So that you would uphold the covenant. So that we would enter into the covenant and you would give us power to keep the covenant. So for those today, God, who have already entered into your covenant, they've come to you on your terms, they've bended their knee, they've said, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. I have nothing to offer. God, continue to empower them, help them to persevere, help them not to give up, but to keep their eyes fixed on you, Jesus. Keep us from the distraction of thinking that our work and our 
our obedience and uh, our enslavement to obedience uh, is what keeps us right with you, God. It's not. It's clear that, Jesus, it's what you've done in dying and rising again and defeating Satan and defeating sin and defeating death. It's clear that that's what holds us in relationship with you. That's why we can come day by day and call you Father. And God, I I pray for those who haven't yet entered into covenant with you. God, I pray that you would stir in their hearts. I pray that the words that have been spoken today, anything of me just that would be chucked out, but that your words that have been clearly spoken today would uh, would be transformational, deep in hearts. God, not just for knowledge's sake. Revive them with your deep and transforming love. Turn hard, calloused hearts to hearts of flesh that are moldable and teachable, God. We thank you, God. Thank you for this great covenant. Thank you for your great kindness to us. Thank you that that kindness is open and available to everyone. It's not limited. So I pray in whatever way this morning that we would all respond appropriately. Amen.